You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Well, let's grab our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark. If you don't have a Bible and you are visiting with us or you just didn't bring one in, just grab a Bible in the seats in front of you. You can turn to page 841 and you'll find Mark chapter 6. We continue our study of the Gospel of Mark, the series I've entitled Vistas of Christ as Mark races through the three years of ministry of this most amazing man who himself was actually and is actually God, stopping every once in a while to give us a a lookout point to be able to see who Jesus is, what his message was about, and where he fits in redemptive history. I want to go ahead and read this passage because as I do, I think you will find it one of those that perhaps you would think that a pastor would skip over. But we will not, and I believe there are some very practical, relevant topics for us to learn and transition into living. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. Mark writes, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee, for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. There are passages that we read and we think, why did God include this in Scripture? But I think as we unpack it and as we engage with it within the context of the Gospel of Mark, I think you will see that there is purpose and something for you and I to take away. 
You know, back in seminary, my wife and I did not have a whole lot of money, and we decided, though, that we needed to celebrate our 10th anniversary in style. And so my wife researched online some resorts, and she found a brand new one in Cabo San Lucas in Mexico that they were basically just giving away rooms. And so, so we were excited because we had nothing, but we had an opportunity to go down to a resort in Mexico, and I remember arriving at the airport, and we found very quickly this was not America. There were people yelling and shouting and waving their arms and speaking in a language we did not understand. But one guy came up to me and said, hey, man, do you want to earn $100 cash? Okay, I'm not trying to offend anybody, but I'm trying to put you in the context. So I said, yes, because A, I'm a penny pincher, B, I'm in seminary. And C, I did not budget well, so that $100 cash would be crucial for us to be able to enjoy our vacation. And so this guy whisked me into this larger room, and in this room, there were all these Americans who had just been asked the same thing. And I walked up to the counter, and I remember the guy saying, okay, you can get these $100, but guess what? You've got to listen to a brief timeshare presentation. I'm naive at this point. And I'm thinking, $100, brief presentation. Look, I can listen to any brief presentation about anything for $100. Now, I learned very quickly, two hours into this brief presentation, when that slick salesman was making Sally and I feel guilty for saying no for the 10th time, I learned a valuable truth that this is free for you guys, okay? So you can write this down or however you remember it. No promised benefit for a brief presentation at a timeshare outweighs the cost. Write that down, own that. Now, some of you might come to me at the end of the service and say you figured it out, but listen, no. Do not ever take the bait because whatever they promise you is not worth the time and the guilt that you would feel walking away by saying no. Now, why do I share that story with you? I did get the $100, by the way. (laughs) Because I think up to this point, if we've been studying the Gospel of Mark, we might see being a disciple of Jesus Christ focusing on the $100, focusing on the benefit. Because after all, Jesus is the most popular rabbi in all of Israel. Jesus, when he teaches, preaches with authority. The authority that I preach with is not in me, it's not in a degree, it's in the Word of God, but Jesus is the living Word of God. I mean, the benefits of being with this rabbi and being one of his followers is that you get to see miraculous healings. You get to see exorcisms. You get to see that this man that you are following actually is victorious over Satan and his minions. Up to this point, the majority of the concept of discipleship has been in the benefits. But what we saw last week is that discipleship is also costly. But unlike a presentation for a timeshare, the cost, which is real and it is significant, actually is also for our benefit. 
In fact, if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write that down because that will help us with the mindset as we look at a passage like this, that the costs of discipleship are significant and real, but they are also for our benefit because God uses the costs of discipleship to reveal whether or not we are true disciples. God uses the costs of discipleship to change us from who we were to who we are and who we need to be in Christ. And so we see that in this passage. The costs are major. They are significant. They are real, but they are also for our benefit. Look at the big idea in the notes. Discipleship is costly, often in ways and scenarios that are not expected. Let's look, first of all, at discipleship is something that surrenders to absolute truth. Discipleship surrenders to absolute truth. The context here, beginning in verse 14, is that King Herod hears something. I want to back up and explain to you who Herod is, because if you study the New Testament, especially the Gospels and Acts, you see Herod thrown around a lot, but you learn very quickly that Herod's come, Herod's go. So who is this Herod? Well, this Herod is actually the son of the most famous Herod, the most famous Herod being Herod the Great. Herod the Great was an extremely shrewd politician. He was an Idumean, so he was a descendant of Esau. So, yes, a descendant of Abraham, but not the descendant of promise. He was shrewd. He made deals with Rome. In fact, he was so shrewd in his dealings with Rome that they assigned to him the official title, King of the Jews. That was very important. He had 10 wives. And several sons. He was also extremely fearful. In fact, you can remember back in Matthew chapter 2 when the Magi came to Jerusalem and they said to Herod, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? How did Herod respond? In great fear. And it says Jerusalem feared with him. Why? Because he was extremely fearful and would not hesitate to execute even members of his family, including wives. This was the dad of the Herod we're reading about here. Upon Herod's death, he assigned several of his sons sections of Israel. And they became known as tetrarchs. A tetrarch in the Roman Empire is just below an actual king. And so this particular Herod is Herod Antipas, and he was given the regency or the oversight of two sections. In fact, we'll put a map up on the screen. The two sections in red, or kind of pink here, are the two sections that Herod Antipas was given oversight for. Remember the Sea of Galilee. That's the larger body of water right above Galilee. He was given the western section known as Galilee, exclusively Jewish, and then also this area down to the southeast called Perea. That was Herod Antipas's empire. Now, Herod desperately wanted the title of king. He never would receive that from Rome but he demanded of the population that they called him king. That's why Mark says in verse 14, this is King Herod. 
And so King Herod, just like his father, hears news of somebody who is becoming popular, somebody who is becoming powerful. He's beginning to take notice of this. He's beginning to grow in his fear, grow in his anger. And he looks out at popular opinion, and Mark records three opinions on who Jesus was. Let's look first of all at verse 15. Some said that Jesus was Elijah. Now, why did they say he was Elijah? Well, Elijah had the fame of being two people in recorded history who never experienced the death that you and I will experience, physical death. Elijah ended this life on earth strapped to a chariot of fire with his protege, Elisha, straining to see him right off into the distance. There are prophecies like Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 that speak of Elijah returning. And so there was a popular understanding of Jesus' day that Elijah would return before the end times, before judgment day. But it also says in verse 15 that some said that he was one of the prophets of old. The prophets were unique in the Old Testament. The prophets were in a different category and their authority and what they could do. And Jesus referred to himself as a prophet. In Luke chapter 4, verse 24, the crowds said that Jesus must be a prophet. In Luke chapter 7 and verse 16, But it wasn't just Elijah, it wasn't just one of the prophets of old. I skipped over verse 14 because this opinion is what Herod will choose. This opinion was what Mark uses to do the, remember the sitcoms when it would go, and then it would go back in time? That's what Mark is about to do. Let's look at what the opinion was of the crowd. Verse 14, some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And remember, up to this point, Mark has been really trying to show what is the authority that Jesus uses to teach in the way that he does, to heal in the way that he does, to have authority over the demons as he demonstrated. Mark is trying to show who Jesus is. The crowds are asking, who is this man? The authorities want to know, by what authority is Jesus doing this? And so now they think they have the understanding. And that is that the ghost of John has come back and is empowering Jesus. Popular opinion of Jesus' day was that ghosts could come back and that ghosts were more powerful than humans. We'll see that in chapter 6, verse 49. As Jesus walks on the water, they think he is a ghost because ghosts would have had the power in their minds to be able to do what Jesus was doing. So these are the opinions, but where... Herod decides the truth lies is in verse 16. But when Herod heard it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Would you look at that phrase, has been raised? That actually reveals how Herod is processing this. And we can see that Herod is still dealing with conviction. Because the tense of the verb and the form of the verb is that Herod realizes that John could not raise himself from the grave, that that had to be done by God. And so he sees that God is involved in this. So that's interesting, isn't it? 
The scribes come down from Jerusalem back in chapter 3, and they say the power that Jesus is using is Satan's power, but Herod is actually on to the truth. He realizes what's going on here has God's presence written all over it, and he's beginning once again to be convicted. Why? Well, partly because he beheaded John, but also because of verse 17. It was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother, Philip's wife. I love how God's word spells out the details. You know, we have to go back a little bit and be able to understand what had taken place. Philip was Herod's brother, his half-brother, and upon a visit, Josephus tells us, Josephus, the famous Jewish historian, that upon a visit, Herod had fallen in love with Herodias, and he had decided to manipulate the system, the Roman system, to be able to pull Herodias away from his brother and somehow marry her. His lusts overwhelmed her, and as you can see from the family of Herod, they didn't really care much about law. He gave in to his lusts, and he figured out a way to marry Herodias. Now, the problem is, is that this worked in the Roman Empire with Roman law, but it did not with Scripture. Brothers and sisters, I want to highlight this, that when it comes to discipleship, there is a cost, because it does not matter what loopholes our government gives us. It does not matter how strong we are in our emotions. It does not matter how passionate we are in our lusts. Absolute truth is absolute truth, and it is defined by God. See, what happens is when we grow up in those early stages, absolute truth is defined by our parents, isn't it? I mean, I'm talking about the early, early days when you don't even realize there are other human beings on this earth. I mean, whatever your parents tell you is absolute truth. But what happens is you begin to be introduced to friends in the neighborhood. You begin to be introduced to classmates who start to get away with things your mom and dad said you shouldn't do. You start to be introduced to books. You start to be introduced to entertainment. You, my girls have been watching uh, some Disney Channel shows that we did not allow them to do watch growing up. And it's fascinating as I watch them how integrated this world philosophy is. Do you know the parents on Disney Channel are horrible parents? They're, 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 they're just passive. They're just basically kids in grown-up bodies. And so you begin to see that. You begin to be educated by that. They begin to do their own research. And what happens is their conscience gets informed by other truths. And then, here's what happens in our society. Our society says, well, listen to your emotions. Listen to your feelings. They've invented something called the DSM. I don't know if you're familiar with this. The Diagnostics and Statistic Manual on Mental Health Disorders. And what's fascinating about that book that has become the Bible for psychiatry and psychology is that it is simply answers to questions that result in a diagnosis of a disorder. This is not science, beloved. When somebody simply asks you questions and based on your answers determines that you have something physiologically wrong with you, that is not science. 
And yet so much of our society is governed by this, this thinking that somehow you have a disorder because nine out of ten answers to the questions have been yes, and somehow this defines you. Beloved, listen, this is not what God's Word says. And we have a society that is built upon these presuppositions, these identities, this truth, if you will. And what we have been encouraged to think is that you can love whoever you want to love. I think that is so interesting. And I think, tragically, there is no end to that rabbit hole. Beloved, it does not matter how desperate we are to love someone. It does not matter the feelings and the emotions that we are experiencing. It does not matter, listen to this, the progressive nature of the change in morals and ethics or the argument that somehow we are on the wrong side of history. God's truth will always stand. And so here's what happens is that Herodias, the Samaritan, and the the Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea begin to establish this progressive way of thinking. Their conscience was impacted by their emotions, by their lusts, by Roman legislation, and they came to the conclusion that their progressive way of thinking was on the right side of history, that God's word and his standards were fuddy-duddy sticks in the mud, And they came to the conclusion that what they decided to do was okay. But God's word here, in the wording, and what John will reveal in the next passage, is absolute truth. It says that this was his brother Philip's wife. Beloved, this is costly. Because you want to know something? This way of thinking is not the way the world thinks. And sadly, more and more, this way of thinking is not the way the American church thinks. And so my exhortation to you, my exhortation to me is hold the line. Remember that preaching absolute truth in a church service, preaching absolute truth in a workplace, in a classroom, in your neighborhood is not popular I find it fascinating to see movements that claim to be Christian that are popular in the world. Do you realize, and I think this bears up, you can share with me if you disagree, but I do not think that somebody who stands up and preaches biblically will be popular in the world, especially in our day and age. So beloved, this is costly. Discipleship is costly, and discipleship surrenders to absolute truth. Number two, discipleship surrenders to convictional leadership. It surrenders to convictional leadership. Now, I want you to understand that convictional leadership is both in a disciple leading with conviction as well as a disciple submitting to leadership with conviction. And I'll show that to you here in just a moment. What we see in this passage is the progressives are getting away with their progressive way of thinking. We have no record up to this point that anyone had stood up and told Herod that what he was doing was wrong. Although the Jews would have absolutely disagreed and not approved with what he and Herodias were doing, nobody is recorded to say anything. 
And so it appears that the progressives are winning. It appears that the progressives are getting away with it, except for one individual. Look at verse 18. For John, this is John the Baptist, had been saying, would you underline had been saying? For those of you who are grammar Greeks, this is the imperfect tense. What this demonstrates is repetition. That, that's important. John did not just say, hey, it's wrong, I'm going to just run away. I did my part. He kept saying it. He kept saying it to his face. Herod, what you are doing is wrong. He led with conviction. What is conviction? I'll ask the team to put a definition up on the screen. Conviction is a firmly held belief or opinion, a resolve that shapes and motivates us in what we think, say, and do, no matter what circumstances or influences, internal or external. I love that definition. And this is not the way that people lead today. People lead today based on popular opinion. People lead today based on what you can do for me and whether or not I will be elected. People lead today in a very pragmatic, which means the end justifies the means, fashion. But conviction is a firmly held belief or opinion that is a resolve. This is what motivates me. This is what shapes not only what I do, but also what I think and what I say. This is conviction, but what is it based on? Is it based on emotions? Is it based on whether I feel good today? You know, that, that happens a lot in our society. We'll hear people live a certain way or respond to people a certain way, and they'll just say, well, I'm just having a bad day, as though that excuses the way that they're responding. But verse 18 says that, John was basing his conviction on the law. On what law? Not the Roman law, on the law of Scripture, on absolute truth. That's why he says in verse 18, you have your brother's wife. I, I love how John describes this. Listen, beloved, we need to use biblical terms when we describe activity. It is not an affair, it is adultery. It is not alcoholism, it is drunkenness. We call behavior what Scripture calls behavior. That's what John did. But listen, beloved, that is not popular today. In fact, I heard this last week on, I think it was uh, the Albert Moeller podcast, uh, that we've, dis- we've relegated in our society biblical truth and actual, it, it, this is what it was, it was the USA Today. Did you guys read this about the the young lady who's been running high school track up in the Northeast. And she was just saying, look, I have not been able to succeed because of transgender athletes. And she said, male athletes, but the USA Today changed it back to transgender because they said we do not allow for hateful speech. Since when has the word male ever been a method of hateful speech? We live in a society where this is front and center, beloved. 
Do not let the world influence the way that you think. Let Scripture guide us. And listen, we do not want to be uh, reckless with this. We do not want to be needless in our, uh, our effect, in our offense, but we do want to stand up with conviction and say what the Bible says. Now, there are seasons when I've done this well. There are others when I have vacuumed. That's what I say when I say sucked. My, my junior year of college, this was especially true. I, I wanted desperately to be drafted and go into professional baseball. And your junior year in college is the first time that you can actually be drafted. Well, I remember this year was actually the worst statistical career or season of my life. And, and, and everything just was, ugh. Like, have you ever had a season where you just, like, you wake up in the morning and you feel the weight of just life? And so the, the weight was influencing the way that I thought, the way that I spoke, the way that I treated my, my girlfriend back at that time, the lovely and beautiful Sally Megan. And it actually influenced me to break up with her. Beloved, I had a victim mentality. Can I just share with you an important truth that I would encourage you to write down? God never excuses our sinful response because of unfair or unjust influences. We'll hopefully put the quote up on the screen. Beloved, if you could just own this and live it out, it would avoid so much of the pain and the suffering that you are experiencing. Because that junior year, I had unfair and unjust influences in my life. They were real. But what I did is I adopted the victim identity. Have you ever done that before? You adopt the victim identity because you focus on what is unfair or unjust instead of your responsibility. And I'd be hard, I'm hard-pressed to come up with a scenario where something in your life isn't somehow even a little bit your responsibility. But what we do and what we're encouraged to do in our society is get to a place where even if we have the slightest injustice, the slightest uh, uh, unreasonable and painful experience, that somehow we can adopt the victim identity and it excuses our response in a way that is sinful or against God's design. Beloved, God never excuses our sinful response to unfair or unjust influences, and Sally called me out on this. Oh, that was not fun. But she demonstrated convictional leadership. She showed me I was navel-gazing. She showed me I was self-absorbed. She led with conviction. Beloved, listen, true disciples lead with conviction even though it costs And they surrender to someone who is leading with biblical conviction, even if it means they don't get to do what they want to do. You know, I understand. I'm I'm a broken vessel of clay, and so what I'm sharing with you is probably limited to the vehicle that is communicating it. But what I'm sharing with you is gold. You think there's gold out there in the horizontal pursuits? This is gold. 
If you could somehow grasp this, if you could somehow own this, if you could somehow have this be the lenses through which you look at your circumstances, beloved, you will be a healthy disciple of Christ no matter what your circumstances. So now we have an opportunity for the two individuals who are being called out. How would they respond? Verse 19, Herodias. She wanted what she wanted, didn't she? And she held a grudge. This is the imperfect tense. Once again, she repeatedly held a a grudge. This comes up. Uh, Herod comes back and says, she says, where have you been? I've been with John. Oh, yeah, what did he say this time? Well, he said we shouldn't be together, and he said this is unlawful. And instead of her responding to that conviction, she held a grudge. And look at what it says she wanted to do. Instead of dealing with the conviction, she wants to cut it off, doesn't she? Beloved, that's often what we do in our flesh. We turn up the music so we don't hear. We shut the shades so we don't see. This is the response of Herodias to leadership with conviction. How about Herod? Verse 20, he's intrigued. He sees that John is a righteous man. He sees that he is a holy man. Verse 20, he actually protects John from Herodias, from his wife. It says that he listened to John. The imperfect tense is there once again. And he interacted with it. He was perplexed. He's he's struggling with, man, if this is true, but this is the way that I'm living, there's a disconnect here. And he's struggling with it. But look what's interesting at the end of verse 20. He heard him how, what does it say? He heard him gladly. I mean, all you have to do is study the Herods. Study the family, and you will see this is an immoral, uh, unspiritual family. So how did this immoral man keep going back to the source of conviction and listen to him gladly? Two reasons. Number one, it was absolute truth. Would you write that down? If somebody has not been numbed in their conscience... If God has not given them up, which, which, listen, beloved, Romans 1 says, he will give humans up. That's what I think is happening with our society. I think the conscience of our collective society has been given up by God. We have continued to go down the path, down the spiral of calling good what God calls evil and evil what God calls good, and God is giving up our society. There's still potential for reform. There's still potential for revival, but it will not be in legislation. It will not be in a politician. It will be in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beloved, we are ambassadors of that gospel. So Herod is going back to the source. So I think the one reason why he listened gladly was because leadership with conviction is based on absolute truth. But second of all, Because leadership with conviction is different. It's different. The people who surrounded Herod were yes people. The people who surrounded Herod were people who thirsted for popularity. The people who surrounded Herod made him feel comfortable about his sin. But John was different. So are disciples of Christ. And listen, beloved, I've already preached this to myself twice. And I am convicted all over the place. 
Because listen, no human being can live this out on their own. You stick around me long enough, especially if you're on a leadership team, and you will see I do not live this out perfectly. You will see that I am just like you, and I'm desperate for the gospel. I'm desperate for those lane departure warnings. You've seen those in the cars. Because I get close to the edge so many times, but the Holy Spirit brings me back. The church and my brothers in Christ bring me back. The word of God brings me back. But disciples surrender to conviction. Beloved, let's move on to number three. Discipleship surrenders to vertical identity. Discipleship surrenders to vertical identity. Verse 21 begins a a passage that in the English is actually pretty watered down. Because in the original language and in the historical context, this is grotesque. But an opportunity came. This is Mark informing us what's going to follow. Herod on his birthday gives a banquet. Now, we've seen this back in Esther 1, haven't we? Ahasuerus, the king, gives this massive banquet, and this was normal in the ancient Near East, and and he would invite people who were influential, and especially for Herod, this was important. Why? Because popular opinion affected Rome. And so as long as popular opinion was on his side, Rome would let him keep his command. As soon as popular opinion went south, he could be removed at a moment's notice. So he invites three groups of people, the tribunes, the military leaders, and the leading men of the society. And usually, what these banquets would include was a lot of food, a lot of drinking, and a lot of sensuality. And then what happens in the ancient Near East is they would hire professional erotic dancers. And that's what we see here in this passage And so what does Herodias do? This shows you the depth of her expression of her depravity. That's an important distinction, beloved. Listen, we are all equal at the foot of the cross in our depravity. Just people demonstrate it differently. Herodias demonstrates her depravity by sending in her teenage daughter. And she dances erotically. And it pleased Herod and his guests. And so Herod, in his drunken stupor, in his lust being satisfied and his efforts to show off to these very important people makes a vow and repeats it twice. Do you see it in the text? What do you wish of me? What do you request of me? And I will give it to you up to half the kingdom. Now we see in Herodias's daughter that this was not a pre-designed plan because she goes out to her mother and says, well, what should I ask for? And her mother realizes very quickly, this is my chance. This is what Mark had been saying in verse 21. This is her opportunity. And she asks for the head of John the Baptist. You know what's interesting about a drunk? Is yes, there are chemical influences. Yes, there are physiological changes. But the right thing could snap you out of it. And here... Herod, in his drunken stupor, becomes sober very quickly. Verse 26, he actually has a conscience, doesn't he? And he's exceedingly sorry. Now, beloved, this is the fulcrum on which discipleship or rejection of Christ teeters. 
This is the fulcrum. When you experience conviction, you have one of two opportunities. You can humble yourself and repent, or you can double down, and you can shut it off. Herod has this opportunity. He is exceedingly sorry. But one of the most tragic phrases in all of Scripture reveals his identity. Look at verse 26. Because of. Would you underline that? What is your because of? This is your identity. This exposes what is important in your life. One of the ways you can tell what you're because of is when it is threatened or it is taken away. When your because of is threatened, when you look at what is important to your life and it is threatened to be taken away or it is actually taken away and that spirals you. That, that moves you into this perpetual state of depression or despair. You are not living as a victorious disciple of Christ. And listen, there are difficult circumstances in life. I get it. And I've vacuumed when I've experienced that sometimes. But beloved, it's in these moments when we experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's word that we get to reveal where our identity lies. And if you, when that thing is threatened or taken away, hold fast to your vertical identity, you will be able to weather the storm and bring glory to Christ. And that's what we're here for, right? So what happens to him is he relegates and submits to his horizontal identity. Because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Immediately he sends the executioner out and within moments... John's head is on a platter being presented to his Herodias' daughter. Beloved, is your self-preservation and horizontal identity greater than your vertical one? Authentic, courageous disciple of the king of kings is executed by the sham king who is a coward. And that happens in life. Be prepared for it. And how you prepare for it is remembering the discipleship surrenders to absolute truth. It surrenders to convictional leadership. It surrenders to vertical identity. And number four, discipleship surrenders to divine providence. This is the last verse, but it's an important one, beloved. When his disciples... These are the disciples of John, heard of his death. They came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Which, by the way, can you think of anybody else who was innocent, wrongly executed, buried by his friends? You know, when I use the term providence in this fourth outline point, it's an attempt to confront us with a theological truth. You see, I think sometimes we think of God's providence the way that the New Oxford American Dictionary defines it. Listen to this. We'll put it up on the screen. Providence is the protective or spiritual care of God. Beloved, that is true, but it is partial. Providence is not all just 
care and bringing us out of the trial. Providence, biblically defined, is actually illustrated in verse 29. His disciples are reminded that sometimes disciples die. Sometimes disciples are falsely accused. Sometimes with discipleship there is an injustice. But that's still an expression of God's providence. What is biblically defined God's providence? We'll put this up on the screen. God directing all things to their appointed end. Wow. You mean that might be that I have something physically wrong with me that I never recover from? Yes. You mean it might be that I'm fired from my job unjustly and justice is never served? Yes. Does that mean that you as a Christian single who are doing everything that you can to pursue Christ, to be that kind of a woman or man that a godly spouse would want to pursue, you may be single for the rest of your life? Yes. Does that mean husband and wife who desperately want to have kids, that want to raise them up according to the gospel, according to what Solomon says is wisdom, and you are ready, you've read the books, you're prepared, and you might never be able to have kids? Yes. All of that is God's providence. Why? Because his ultimate end is his glory and the good of those who love him. And yet, beloved, we resist, don't we? We resist sometimes in our rebellion, but sometimes in our pain. Sometimes in our being tired. You ever get tired of suffering? You ever get tired of not having the answers? You ever get tired of just your own inability to grasp biblical truth? Beloved, discipleship surrenders to divine providence. But you know the best mechanism to be able to surrender to divine providence is get to know the divine. And see what happens is we craft this understanding of the divine. We craft this understanding of God that we get comfortable with, that, 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 that is something that we can approach easily. That's not who God is. So allow the circumstances of your life, allow the counsel that you're getting in your life, allow the questions that remain unanswered, allow the expectations that remain unmet to shape and mold your understanding of the divine so that you can surrender to God's providence and continue in your progress as a disciple.